Hey listeners, welcome to a very special episode of The Goods, a film podcast, one I've been looking forward to for a long time now. That intro was the opening to That Thing You Do, the song, which is also the name of the movie that we're going to be talking about today, Brian. We've been building up to this. Yes, this has been at least a few weeks in the making and probably longer than that. If the length of your notes document is any indication. (laughs) Well, I got a lot of thoughts on this movie because keen listeners will know that I have called that thing you do my favorite movie. Period. Number one on my top 100 movies list when we counted down a movie I reference all the time, you know. I'm never going to make the claim that it's the greatest movie of all time or anything like that, but it's my movie. It's a movie I adore and it's a special one. And I've been looking for the right time to talk about it. And I think that time is now, Brian. And you arranged a special venue for the screening as well. That's right. So for my 35th birthday, I rented out a movie theater. Uh, It was actually, I could only find an opening a few weeks after my 35th birthday, which is why birthday season was kind of extended to the better part of a month and a half here on the goods. But uh, I did rent it out. It was my first time ever seeing that thing you do on the big screen. Oh, wow. It was very fun. It was exciting. Uh, You came. We had a few other people join us. Yeah, it was a good turnout. It was the first time that my daughters had seen the movie. They joined us, too. My wife had seen it once or twice, and of course, I've quoted it endlessly to her. Yeah, once or twice. I don't believe that. I I would expect more than that. Yeah, my I've uh, I've forced her to watch most of my favorite movies at least once. Probably Dazed and Confused is the one I've made her watch the most. But that thing you do, yeah, I've made I've made her watch it a few times. So okay. I don't know. Okay, but. The way that I've seen this movie most often is that my family really likes this movie. So there was this tweet making the rounds um, fairly recently that I I couldn't find, but someone sent to me. I think it was either you or my brother, Will, but basically everyone who grew up in the early 90s had that one movie that you had a VHS copy of and you assumed that maybe the whole world knew it or something, but it was just like part of your everyday life. And uh it's one that you remain attached to as you grow up. And for me, that movie was that thing you do among a small handful of others. I think it's okay to have more than one of those, but uh, we watch this movie a lot um, in my, my family. And it's kind of a great movie to watch with your family because it's just so lightweight and so breezy and and positive. Um, At least for me and my family, that's something we can, you can just kind of tune in and out and you can laugh a lot and stuff. And yeah, um, very rewatchable, a lot of details. We'll we'll dig into it. So 
in honor of me getting to talk about my favorite movie of all time, this episode's probably going to run a little long, at least based on the notes. I'll try to keep it reasonable. We'll probably not hit four hours like uh, our Spy Kids episode for your last birthday. <laughs> or I guess that was the birthday before. But Right. Um, right. Birthday before last. I don't even remember what we did on your last birthday. What? Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Okay. All right. I do remember that now. Do you want to do a brief a brief birthday recap? So we did... Well, Iron Giant was your first one, and you did the theater for that. And so I thought that was just a year ago, walking into the theater the other day, and I'm like, wait a minute. No, there's a gap. It was two years. And then we did Forgetting Sarah Marshall, where I had you over, and we watched it. Did we have anyone else, or was it just you and me and, and my wife? Wasn't... I, I think that was it, actually. Yeah, oh, but when we did at my house... There was one that we had Will around, and we watched um, Repo Man. No. They Live? They Live, yes. Yeah. And for your birthdays, we've done the Rock of Fire Explosion, and then Spy Kids, and then we did Feeders and Henry's Kitchen? Henry's Kitchen, yes. Yeah. So... And if I haven't said, Dan got me the Henry's Kitchen cookbook. So very good birthday present earlier this year. But anyways, uh, this episode, because I have a lot of thoughts, it'll probably run longer than our normal episode. Well, you'll know by the runtime here at the bottom of your podcast app or whatever. But I'm going to push things to the limit. Uh, I'm going to require and force Brian to join me for a second outing to discuss that thing you do a part two still figuring out exactly what the shape of this part two is going to be but it's mostly going to be an outlet for me to geek out about various details and ephemera surrounding that thing you do and st any statistics uh i can cook up some t statistics make it like our spectaculars sure um but we'll, we'll come up with some fun stuff to do and uh so there'll be a, a part two, a supplement episode, if you will. But this one's just going to be a normal film discussion and review. Um, so, Brian, any any other preliminary thoughts before we start talking about the 1996 film, That Thing You Do? Uh, so this was my second time watching it. I think... I can't remember the situation in which I, why I watched it the first time. You probably saw it on my Top 100 Everything. That's possible. I think I actually saw it briefly before that, uh, because that would have been 2014. I don't know. I feel like I, I chanced to see it just a little ahead of that, but I could be mistaken. When I In December 23rd, 2014, you said, well, the only version I could track down on the spur of the moment was the extended cut. So I don't know if that was the first time you saw it or something, but that was on my post when I wrote about this movie six years ago. No, wait. Nine years ago, Jesus. Well, there you go. We've got the digital forensics. Yes, I guess that would be the case. I know that there were a number of things that I saw your post and then I tracked it down. Uh, I always appreciated that. But anyways, it was the second time you saw it. I kind of cut you off there. That was all that I had to say. And apparently you saw the extended cut. So that's one of the things I'm going to talk about in part two is there's a extended cut of this. And it's not just a little extended. It's like... 45 minutes longer. It's got a ton more content in it. I've only seen that like two or three times. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to watching it again. It's been a few years. I almost always watch the theatrical cut. It's an hour and 47 minutes. 
that's what we watched in the theater. That's what I watched in the lead up to this episode when I was putting my notes together. And that's what we'll be discussing here. Pretty brisk hour and 47 minutes. It, it moves pretty well. Uh, yeah, I'm surprised it was that long. I think you're right that this cut is better. Yeah. Um, I didn't say that, by the way, but I do think that. <laughs> Given, I may be implicit in the fact that that's the one that I usually watch. Right. Well, you have said it, just not within this window of time. I, I have, yeah. So this movie, stylized typically on the posters and such as, in all lowercase, that thing you do with an exclamation mark at the end, is a film written and directed by Tom Hanks, our boy, our man. Has he directed any others? Yes. He's directed one other film called Larry Crown from 2013, which is uh, an exercise in blandness. It's not bad, but it, it it's striking to me that this first picture of his is so clearly a work of passion and precision and detail, and that one is very much not that. He also co-stars in it. Um, he's not the main character, but he... We'll, we'll see him about a third of the way into the movie and for the rest of the film. Also, the main character kind of feels like a like a cipher for him. Right. So this came out uh, like kind of towards the beginning. Maybe No, you know, what? not the beginning of his imperial era, but like just a couple years after it had started. So this was after Philadelphia and after uh, Forrest Gump, his back to back Oscar wins. Just after Toy Story. That's right. So he was probably the biggest star in Hollywood and would be so for at least a few more years. This movie only made 34 million in, in theaters at the box office, which interrupted a streak of $100 million movies for Hanks that would have spanned 11 movies, if not for this, which is a pretty incredible streak. Wow. And he starred in all of those, too. He's one of the only people to have back to back best Oscar, best actor Oscars. Yeah. And he also wrote two songs for this movie, including the opener called Loving You Lots and Lots. So I, this is this is a Hanks project through and through. And uh, we can talk about some of the Hanks connections as we go. Um, he, he gave cameos to all of his family members in it. But yeah, so let's let's go. Let's dive into that thing you do. This movie takes place in 1964, set in Erie, Pennsylvania. And it stars Tom Everett Scott, who you're right, looks just like a young Tom Hanks. He's got like kind of the curly hair that Hanks had when he was younger, kind of poofing out a little. Uh, just kind of looks like him. He's lanky the way Hanks was lankier when he was younger. He has like some of the same mannerisms, too. I don't know. Like if you go and watch Big or something, it feels almost like they, they plucked him out of there. The, he's the leader of a terrific cast. One of the things I want to do next week, Brian, is... Um, just do a line by line of all the incredible cameos and people who appear in this. Cause it's a long list of, of special little appearances. It's like they, they assembled a cast entirely out of secret weapons and then had a lot of them appear as cameos too. So guy Patterson, he's in his early to mid twenties. We never explicitly get his age, at least in the theatrical cut. It's mentioned that he was abroad in the military. I think Maybe doing I think this would have been after the Korean War, so probably just a peacetime tour of duty. And he works at his family's appliance store. He's being groomed to take over the store. But his passion is he loves drumming. He loves jazz, especially. He spends his evening playing drums along with old jazz records. 
And not just that, but he seems to be very good at it by reputation. We, we just and just what we see on screen. One thing I love about the movie is the actors are actually playing their instruments and most of it's performed live. Uh, the one performance that's added is the voice of the singer is dubbed in by a professional musician named Mike Viola. Oh, yeah, I was struck watching it this time how much jazz there is in it and specifically jazz drumming and it no longer surprised me that Tom Everett Scott is the the like surprise cameo at the end of La La Land yeah Damien Chazelle has cited this as one of his favorite movies Emma Stone too Tom Everett Scott appears in La La Land like you mentioned so one day uh we see some of Guy's acquaintances slash friends. It's clear they're not like best friends, but they've kind of grown up together and know each other and are about the same age. And they form this band that's going to be making its debut performance at a college talent show that night. They're going to be performing this slow dance ballad entitled That Thing You Do. And there's a gag that get in, that gets introduced here in the first couple minutes that the band doesn't know what to name themselves. Um, Jimmy, who's the, the leader of the band, wants to use a clever name for the band the same way that the Beatles had beats like music beat in it. But nobody else likes his ideas. He like brainstorms a bunch and they can't come up with one. What's the one with chord in the name? The, the chord vets, chord vets. Like chords in our music. <laughs> and then a waitress comes by and she says, how about the big tippers? Which I always thought was a nice touch. And in case that's not a, a, a clue for us, there's going to be probably literally hundreds of Beatles illusions in this movie. It's basically as much a love letter to the Beatles as it is anything else. And I'm curious how many of those you caught you caught on to, Brian, but there's a lot of them. The one that struck me this time that I w probably didn't register the last time is there's this shot uh, that's clearly aping one of their movies. I think it's uh, Hard Day's Night, where they're like running around in fast motion on a big m map, yeah, or, uh, like a like a basketball court with a chalk drawing of a map. And w which which Beatles movie is that? I I don't actually know. I know it is a Beatles movie. I think it's either Hard Day Night or Help. Um, I mean, obviously it's not Yellow Submarine because that one's animated, right? That's the one we saw parodied in Walk Hard is Yellow Submarine. And, uh, of course, that, too, is in my mind this whole time. Like, each beat, each development. But they, they're they both, like, comedic takes on the fictional group experiencing a musical biopic, Rise to Fame. But it deviates. Yeah, they're basically inverse versions. It's like one of them is light and breezy and naturalistic and no stakes low stakes let's say and one is like hard drugs and ridiculous parody and violence and stuff so, why are you yeah. so dark when i'm so impish and whimsical <laughs> so the different uh members of this band this as of yet unnamed band are jimmy he's the rhythm guitarist the vocalist and the songwriter, and he's the guy who takes the art of music very seriously. And he's played by Jonathan Sheech. I forget how you say his name. It's S-C-H-A-E-C-H. I'll figure out the pronunciation in time for part two. He is probably the lowest profile actor among the 
core ensemble here. Um, he hasn't been in all that much aside from this. And I honestly think he might be the weakest performance among the, the ensemble, but we can think a little bit more about that. We have Lenny. He's played by Steve Zahn. Um, he's the lead guitarist and he's kind of the goofball. He gets the funniest lines in the movie, or at least funniest on the surface lines. Right. He was making me laugh the whole time. I... His, his performance is so good. He's so funny. I liked it a lot. There's a bass player played by Ethan Embry, who is kind of humorously never actually named throughout the movie. And he's a, he's a kind of a goofy, easygoing guy who's just along for the ride. I I wasn't paying attention enough to understand that that was a joke, that he was never named. Right. And then people like laughed when the title card comes up at the end and we'll talk about it. But I was like, what? <laughs> what happened? I, yeah, it had just never registered for me because he's not there all the time. Right. He's the other guy. That's like the joke is that he's just the other band member. Right, right. Their initial drummer is this guy named Chad played by Giovanni Ribisi, who, again, Steve Zahn, Ethan Embry, Giovanni Ribisi are all guys who just like appear and make whatever they're in better. So I was it just works so well to have all of them here. And so he's pretty clearly not the best drummer, but he's like he's there. And then the the last may as well be a member of the band is Faye, who is Jimmy's adoring girlfriend, played by a young Liv Tyler, one of her first movie appearances. And she is terrific in this, too. She's like she nails what the role needs to be, basically. Yeah. So this would have been what, like two years before Armageddon and five years before Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I think it was the same year. I'm actually going to look it up now. There's a movie called Empire Records that 1995. So it's a year after uh, Empire Records, which co-starred Liv Tyler. She was actually, I think, the first first build. And then also co-stars Ethan Embry, the bass player. Oh, wow. So just a year earlier. That would be an interesting one for me to choose sometime. I saw it once and would like to see it again. So that morning before their first show, they're kind of like going through the music and we see Chad and the bass player are doing like hopping over parking meters and Chad is having a hard time with it. And then he stumbles down and breaks his arm and he's like kind of writhing there and moaning. And this is kind of happening in the background as we see uh, Lenny and Jimmy talking through the song and the bass player comes up to them and says, guys, Chad fell down, which is one of my favorite deliveries in the movie. It's funny. And when I watched it, I just thought it was like a slice of life moment. I didn't register until like two thirds of the way through the movie. I was like, oh, wait, that's why he has the broken arm. Right. It wasn't just random. Everything. <laughs> nothing is coincidence. Everything means something. It's a really tight screenplay. So now they're down a drummer, but their show is that night. And so they decide to recruit Guy, who, of course, loves his drumming to replace Chad just for the show that night. And Guy reluctantly accepts at the appliance store. He makes him buy a radio and some record needles to entice him. And then we cut to them at rehearsal and Guy nails the song immediately. Clearly, he's like much more skilled than this slow ballad requires. And this is our first time hearing the song, That Thing You Do. And the first time we hear it, it is a slow version. So, Brian, the one of the first top fives we ever did for the podcast was 
top five favorite songs from movies, uh, with the requirements being that it be a song that debuted with that movie that that was made for that movie. Right. I picked that thing you do as my favorite movie song of all time. And, um, I stand by it. It's, it's an absolutely perfect and brilliant piece of power pop music written by Adam Schlesinger and Mike Viola. It might just be Schlesinger who has the writing credit, but the demo was him and, and Viola. And I'll talk a little bit more about the backstory of this song next, uh, in part two, but it is crucial that the song be great because we hear it something like I counted it one time I watched. I think it was 14 times throughout the movie. Um, and if it wasn't good, then it would really, really drag the movie down. And being great, of course, elevates the movie because you get to hear it over and over again. Right. It's not the only song they sing the whole movie. But no, my, my five year old thought it was. She's like. I really like that song. It's the only song they play. And I was like, it's not the only song they play, Eleanor. <laughs> there's lots of great songs on that soundtrack. But you're right. They do play it a lot. And yeah, I mean, there's lots of great songs on the soundtrack. But as it goes along, like more bands also come into the picture. So they also do not play all the songs. Right, right. So there's like something like four or five songs by The Wonders. And then there's... On the soundtrack itself, I think there's like probably in the realm of eight songs by other artists, um, all of whom are fictional, by the way, made up for the movie, songs made for the movie, which is one of the things I love about the movie is it's got this whole universe of pop music that's fictional, but feels texturally very real, like 1964. Right. I did think that was very cool. And then even there's even more throughout the movie itself that didn't make it on the soundtrack. I wish there was like an extended version of the soundtrack that had the full version of every single song that we hear even a snippet of in the movie. But alas, did they ever go around and do a concert tour? You know, I don't actually know. Like uh, we talked about that with uh, Walk Hard, how that was something they had planned if the movie had been a hit, but it bombed. I'll, I'll look that up. I'm going to watch the DVD special features before we next record before part two. And I think they'll probably mention that. So as they're wrapping up the rehearsal, Guy says, wonderful. And he does a little drum fill. And Faye, who's just kind of hanging around, hears this and says, wait a minute. That could be our name. The Wonders. Except instead of one, it's O-N-E, like one. And immediately the, Jimmy likes it. And uh, Lenny's making fun of it. Got it. Looks like the O'Neaters. It's, it's a, a gag throughout much of the movie. Also... All throughout the movie, if Guy has an idea, people are like, that's a great idea. <laughs> Everybody treats Guy like he's the main character. Yeah, he's he is the main character. He's popular and he's funny. He, he makes a couple mistakes. And one thing that I've appreciated about the movie as I go back is he says some dopey things or like goofy things where he's like, I don't know, not just like heroic and wise, but also just kind of a little bit of a goober every now and then. Right. Um, he thinks it's really cool to call himself Spartacus. And I, I've never seen Spartacus. Maybe we got to watch that one. So I don't know if that is like apt. Like the people that he says it to never seem to quite get it either. So yeah, I, I want to talk about that. So we may as well talk about that now. So it, that's uh, TV tropes calls this arc words. It's like a, a phrase that gets repeated that ties through the movie and changes meaning and significance as it goes along. 
Um, he says it a bunch, but I don't quite get it. I don't. I think it's just like a thing that people said in the '60s to be cool and heroic. Like I don't know if there's much more to it. I haven't seen Spartacus either. I don't know if the, this arc mirrors Spartacus or like reveals ironies about Guy and Spartacus that weren't initially there. Not quite sure. Right. I mean, my knowledge of Spartacus is that. So there, I've seen the one scene from the movie where, like, you know, the the authorities or whatever have, like, cornered him. And there's this group and they're like, turn over Spartacus. Which one of you is Spartacus? And then everybody starts standing up and saying, I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. And the whole crowd says that. So he's not outed. But then I know that the historical Spartacus was at, like he led the servile war. He was a rebel slave who had been a gladiator and and led this army of slaves which ultimately was defeated and they like all got crucified along the road like life of brian and i guess if you're gonna read into it at least from the movie scene it's like guy is the one who actually kind of kicks things in motion we'll see here in a minute even though everybody gets to kind of share in the glory i mean maybe that's it i don't know but I've never quite cracked that one. And you're right. I should watch Spartacus to see if it gives me any more insight. And I did some Googling on it and no one had a good explanation, at least in like the 10 articles I read that referenced that line. Well, for next week, we'll watch Spartacus and any (laughs) other movie referenced in this film. So we're also going to watch Fireball XL5, the puppet animation television series. That's right. That we see that in a clip in the, um, appliance store by the way i left that one out on our greatest theme songs uh discussion really really good theme song for fireball xl5 oh i've never heard it i gotta look it up so anyways i'm ashamed to say i'd probably seen the movie like 15 times before it clicked in my brain that wonders was a play on the phrase one hit wonder it's like the most obvious thing once you you know it and it essentially tells you what the rest of the movie is going to be but one hit wonders, the one dash ders. Constantly misunderstood to be the Oneeders. One of my biggest laughs was so multiple times you hear somebody says Oneeders and then they say, no, it's wonders. But then you get the one where somebody says Oneeders and Zahn says, that's Onetters. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So that night at the talent show, um, there's a lot of medium to decent performers. We see a few of them. There's a mariachi band by a fraternity that has a bunch of the fraternity bros there cheering. It's got like a cheerometer. That's how they're going to choose the winner of the talent show. Um, there's also a Carol King style soft pop girl group. And that's when Guy arrives and he says, we're going to cream these ladies, which I just think is a really funny line. And then it's time for them to perform. So remember, that thing you do is a slow ballad. And... In a, what appears to be a spur of the moment decision, he hears a rhythm in his head and he decides to play the song fast and upbeat instead of slow. And Jimmy's like, no, you're going too fast, man. But he just keeps drumming away and the band like performs to keep up with it. And it's it's probably the second best scene in the movie, at least it's my second favorite. It's really fun watching them sort of like in the moment the band is figuring out what's going on with the song and how special the song is when it goes fast. 
And then the people in the audience are getting kind of like, oh, what's this song? This is good. And they're standing up and starting to dance and momentum kind of builds. And everybody kind of realizes that, hold on, this is something special, including the band and including Faye, who's in the audience and the people who are at the talent show. Just a, a perfect scene. Every shot is terrific. This movie's so well edited. A couple of people in the crowd. Is this, <laughs> there are some college fangirls. You get some nice, like, cheesy early 60s uh fashion and there's there's a girl named Chrissy Tompkins who comes up a couple times but my favorite is this unnamed heckler fan who's played by Sean Whalen and you said you recognized him Brian right so he's got a very distinctive face it, it's kind of rodent like so what i recognized him from is the early seasons of it's always sunny in philadelphia the group had a rivalry with this like gross family called the McPoyles and he's one of the two main McPoyles. Mm, okay. But keen and strong memory listeners will recall that when we talked about idle hands, Sean Whalen was the connection there. I had was clicking through the filmographies of various people of that thing you do, including Sean Whalen's. And I discovered this movie idle hands. I was like, what is that? And so then we ended up watching that movie and he played one of the cops in there. And I, I genuinely like this guy because he's funny and also like he's nice to the group. He cheers them on. And right. He's their first fan. He's like, you guys should record a record. Yeah. So they win the contest easily with the host saying, that's wicked. It's so wicked. The Oneidas are the champions. And as they're winning, um, this restaurant owner who was clearly there scouting talent runs up to the stage and uh, offers them a paying gig to go per perform at the Italian restaurant by the airport called Villa Pianos. I, if I ever got merch of that thing you do, a shirt for Villa Pianos would be my first choice, this fictional Italian restaurant. Oh, interesting. You know, the, the storyline of the musicians performing at the talent show and then going on to play at a restaurant... We saw it in Walk Hard, but that's not the only other one that we've seen it in. Uh, w can you think of the other goods selection where that happens? Talent show. Hmm. No. Well, I guess they didn't win the talent show, but they do go on to work playing music at a restaurant is Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Ah! And I wonder if that career ever took off. Somebody heard him playing at... Uh, Doc Bullfrog's Riverside Rest and said, hey, I want to sign you. Come come sign this piece of paper in my RV. Yeah, that's right. So um, we see them performing at, at the restaurant. And this is where I'll mention that Guy has a girlfriend named Tina, played by Charlize Theron, I think is how you say it. Um, Charlize Theron, the acclaimed... South African actress. I think she's South African. Um, I think she won an Academy Award. And she's also Rita on Arrested Development. If you hear me call her Rita instead of Tina, it's because me and my wife have been watching Arrested Development reruns recently. That's the five episode arc of a girl, British girlfriend in. Oh, OK. Season three. Mr. F. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That whole arc is like an elaborate reference to a movie called being there which is a pretty good one if you have mm. a chance to see it 
It's I mean it's kind of like the storyline of Forrest Gump where somebody is like mentally deficient but then happens to inspire a big group just by like bumbling through life. Yeah. And you could also deconstruct that arc as like a parody of romantic comedies in general and manic pixie dream girls and also just like savagely satirizing Michael for like thinking about the world in his terms and that it's, it's a interesting arc. I don't know if it's the most fun arc of that show, but it's uh it's an interesting one. It, it is great as the show goes along that, I mean, the whole time Michael is kind of positioned as the straight man to everybody else is wacky and he's the normal one. But then as it goes, you see, he's kind of weird too. Yeah. He's just as bad as them in many ways, but the, the set at the Italian restaurant goes well. And they decide to record the song on a record, which is, again, Guy's idea from inspired by the the fan, the heckler. And uh, I call him a heckler because he heckles the host of the talent show. He doesn't heckle the band. He's a big fan of the band. But Guy says, we should record a record. And Faye says, a record, 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 which is is a good line. Um, And so they do decide to do that. That night, they also get a, a bonus because um, the Villapianos guy wants them to come back and play again. And he says, you know what this is? And Lenny says, presidential flashcards, which me and my brothers very briefly formed a ska band. And we, we called ourselves the presidential flashcards in tribute to that line from that thing you do. Did you record a record? No, we didn't. I wish we had. And lucky for for the band, Guy's uncle... Sorry, Guy's Uncle Bob, who's played by Chris Isaac, who is a well-known musician from the 90s and kind of out of character. He recorded kind of sultry pop music. He works in the music business and he helps them record their song. And they do it in a church, which is kind of funny because he he records church music. Um, and the band then gets their records and they start selling them at another Villa Pianos gig for a buck a piece. And this is the first moment where we get guys, I am Spartacus refrain. You happen to be talking to Spartacus here, which is, again, not even how the phrase is structured, but I, I kind of like it, um, even though it doesn't quite make sense. Now, there is this local music manager, talent agent type guy who sees their gig at Villa Pianos and buys one of their record. And the next day uh, tracks the band down and basically says, hey, I want to be your manager. I'm going to get you played on the radio. I'm going to get you some gigs at some local shows. And Jimmy, of course, is the one who values the integrity of his music. And he's kind of reluctant to sign. But Lenny prevails with his logic. A man in a really nice camper wants to put our song on the radio. Give me a pen. I'm signing. You're signing. We're all signing. Which is, it's another very good delivery. And just as this is happening, Tina meets her handsome dentist and immediately falls in love with him, leaving Guy single for his romantic arc to play out for the rest of the film. But sure enough, within a few days, they're scouring the radio, trying to see if the the song gets played, and they hear that thing you do on the radio. And everybody goes rushing over to Guy's appliance store, where they all celebrate hearing their song on the radio for the first time. And this is easily the best scene in the movie. Uh, Just 
honestly one of my favorite movie scenes ever it's just so joyful everyone's so happy and it's infectiously happy it makes you happy it's like if i'm in a bad mood i watch the scene it'll make me happy it's shot pretty dynamically too i mean because everybody's like convening from all across the little town and so they make their way into the record store and you're following them for ways down the street as like Faye and guy hear the song for the first time and then they make it in there and then like as they're dancing around and it's a record store so there's a bunch of music equipment in there to, uh, radios hi-fis they say and so they're like going around turning on all the hi-fis and while they're doing that then other people are, are coming in from outside because they you know they had to drive right it yeah, so it's it's Faye and the bass player running down the sidewalk where they find Guy, and Guy's in the middle of selling some appliances at the appliance store where they have record play, record players. He's talking about the washing machines you could get, and it's like very quiet compared to the energy that's about to come in. He's like, you could get classic white, beige, avocado, and then they come storming in, and it like interrupts the sales pitch. It's very funny. I did really like the you know they're jumping up and down outside, and then the smash cut to. There's beige. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Lenny and Jimmy hear it and they drive and they stop in the middle of the road. If you watch it closely, they just stop, park their car in the middle of the road and then run out and run into the store. It's pretty funny. Great scene. This is also not the only stereo store that we've seen prominent in in a movie. Uh, we did Boogie Nights, which, of course, is where uh, Buck Swope works. Don Cheadle. Oh, yeah, that's right. His pa that's his passion, right? But the group is about to hit their first roadblock. Their first show arranged by their manager comes out. It's this uh, Pittsburgh rock show. And I like uh, when they're about to perform, the manager comes in and, and says, how you boys doing? And Guy says, ready to show Pittsburgh no mercy, which is a weirdly funny and intense line. Another example of him just being kind of goofy. But the show goes poorly, the, the mics don't work, and then they do feedback, and Guy gets startled and all frozen up, and he doesn't drum well, and it all goes wrong. But they actually get their big break here, because it turns out that uh, a Playtone Records, which is a fictional record label, manager, who is Mr. White, happened to be at that show and happened to have heard the record. And Mr. White is played by none other than Tom Hanks. And Hanks likes their song and wants them to join the big music label, Playtone. And uh, Tom Hanks has used Playtone as his kind of brand for his studio and his production label for various things. Uh, one of our movies was done by, was produced by Playtone. I think it was City of Ember. Uh, we talked about it, but, and we see them start their tour. So now they're, they've gone over just the course of a few days They've gone from being this group performing at a local talent show to getting their song on the radio, doing a local rock show. And now they're officially on tour. Very rapid rise for the Oneaters, the Wonders. The song recorded just 35 minutes ago. <laughs> That's um, Walk Hard, right? Yeah. And this is where we start to see some of the expanded musical universe of that thing you do with like, uh, there's a... We'll talk. I want to talk more about it. I'm going to save some some space, something for us to talk about in part two. But it, it is really impressive and cool how many facsimiles there are of real styles and like fake celebrities in there that are treated with reverence. It's kind of fun. And then when they start with Playtone, a couple of developments. First, 
Mr. White, Tom Hanks points out that nobody gets O-N-E-dashters, O-Neaters. So they're just the wonders, or as Lenny says, as in, I wonder what happened to the O-Neaters. And um, Guy gets sunglasses, so his style is going to be Shades. That's his nickname. He's always going to wear shades wherever he goes. And they kind of play up the nice guy appearance of the whole group. They always wear matching suits in different colors. Yeah, all matching except they give Guy the sunglasses. And Tom Hanks, like, exclusively talks to Guy. And even the manager that they had before that, like, pulls him aside one night and, like, I can tell that you're the brains of the group. And it's like, oh, my gosh. Everybody... How many bands... I, I honestly don't know, so maybe you can tell me, but how many bands is the drummer the main character? Not too many, and I think that's part of at least why Damien Chazelle likes this movie. It's like, how often is the drummer the protagonist, you know? And Damien Chazelle, being a jazz drummer himself, appreciated it. I like that about Guy, though. I like that they uh, let him kind of... They don't... I feel like they flaunt it the right amount. Like, he is the, the heroic self-insert smart guy but he's just really likable as he's played and so you kind of root for him mm -hmm. and to me it's like less bad than like in boogie nights where mark Wahlberg is the guy with the big penis that everybody loves and he can have as much sex as he wants but for some reason it bothers me less here i don't know why but mm -hmm. it is what it is uh, we also learn here that the bass player has joined the marine corps he of course didn't know that they were going to be going on tour and he's leaving the band at the end of summer and so that's, I guess, the end date for this version of The Wonders. Um, but it doesn't phase Mr. White all that much. He mostly just <laughs> wants The Wonders to get their song out there. And uh, the song starts to climb the charts. So this is where we get that montage that you talked about of the them going on the different state tours and their song. It goes gets on Billboard and goes higher and higher and higher. The crowds, the cheering crowds get bigger and bigger and bigger. The The biggest one is in Wisconsin, where there's it's like uh, throngs of of young women, like jumping on the car and stuff, try, waiting by the exit of the stage to, to like mob the the band. It made me want to go to a lot of state fairs. Yeah, it was fun. And Lenny says, well, I like Wisconsin. Part of this is they do promotional radio interviews it's another detail i like is you just see these different ra radio djs interviewing them in all sorts of different styles um and they we also get to know the other musical acts a little bit more but one thing we see is that jimmy is getting more and more disillusioned with this showiness and the artificiality of the the touring life and the pop star life and he's also getting less and less attached to Faye. though of course guy is always looking out for Faye everywhere they go and she is often like following him around too uh, to be fair i mean she she kind of seems to love both of them like she she likes jimmy too and is very devoted to jimmy oh yeah yeah for sure and talks jimmy up but there's always like a little bit she's she's always very close to guy too right i mean the very first scene that we see Faye is in the diner when they're coming up with the band name and she like walks over and says hi to Guy separately from the rest of the group. And eventually uh, their album gets to the top 10. So it gets to number seven. I think I read somewhere that we don't see it on screen, at least in the theatrical cut, but it gets as high as number two. Although we only ever hear it being referenced as getting to number seven. But they get called to Hollywood because now they're the a major teen sensation at the top of the charts and 
or near the top of the charts and they get to go do some high profile promotion for the the song and for the playtone label so a couple of things happen here they get a photo op with the founder of the playtone records who jimmy tries to talk with about his different song ideas but the guy chews him out it's like further disheartening jimmy here i felt bad for jimmy as far as what he keeps harping on is like okay but we got to record more songs can't just be this one song and like that's a good point because you need raw material when i did the la trip a couple weeks ago we met with this group that i guess they're like Ticketmaster, and they sell they sell concert tickets and they like arrange concert tours and they say that that's where musicians make like all of their money is in concerts. Like it's not from Spotify and right. it's, it's not very much from record sales or whatever form that takes now. Uh, it's being on tour, but you can't go on tour unless you got those raw materials. Exactly. You can't just have one song that doesn't make a concert. It's like the, the car is not going to go without gas. Yeah. Another thing that happens while they're in Hollywood is they get to appear in a movie called Weekend at Party Pier, and they appear as a band called Cap'n Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters. Um, this is very clearly a play on Beach Party, which we've talked about on the pod, and we've talked about the Beach Party spoof Teen Beach movie. Right. So, so it's also analogous to uh, what was it in there? Wet Side Story? Right. Yeah. In Teen Beach movie. And there's... A guy named Goofball, who is Meathead or Deadhead or something in the Teen Beach, not in Teen Beach, in the Beach Party movies. I think it might have been both. Didn't he change at some point? Or Yeah, yeah. But it was still the same actor or something. And it's right around now that the band's unity starts to crumble a little bit. Not in like any sort of dramatic flare out way, but it's a diaspora. They like gradually spread out from each other. So Lenny connects with a record label secretary who happens to be an ex-Playboy bunny. Right, because the whole time up to then, he'd been trying to get a girlfriend. Right, constantly try hitting on different women. We see Guy go by himself to a jazz club. Um, there he meets a cocktail waitress who is played by Rita Wilson, a.k.a. Tom Hanks's wife. He also there meets his jazz hero, who he's shouted out a whole bunch of times throughout the movie, Del Paxton. And he meets him at the jazz club and gives him some sage advice or rather Dell gives him some sage advice, but he's really drunk. And he says, you are my biggest fan. He gets it reversed when he meets him slurring through it. Um, the bass player meets some fellow Marines and shows him how many pushups he can do. And he goes to Disney World with them. Disneyland in Anaheim. Excuse me. Disneyland. Right. Disney World's the Florida one. Yeah, my mistake. And Jimmy's just moping around, complaining about how no one takes him seriously. And Faye is kind of sticking up for him and tries to explain that Jimmy's a genius and he has really high standards. And that's why he's grumpy. And Guy says, if Jimmy's a genius, I'm Utant. And the bass player says, who's Utant? Guy starts to explain, but then says, never mind. But if you look it up, he is the secretary general of the United Nations. He was the third secretary general. And his name is spelled U is just the letter U. Last name is Tant, T-H-A-N-T. Well, thank you for looking that up because I had no idea. <laughs> what country was Utant from? Burma. Okay. They've always got good names, the secretaries general, um, because, I mean, they fulfill their mission of being from all over the place. 
but it's it's names like Ban Ki Moon and Kofi Annan. Right. Um, the culminating moment of all of this, though, is a TV performance of that thing you do on an Ed Sullivan type show called the Hollywood Television Showcase. And this is going to be an elaborate riff on the Beatles first performance on Ed Sullivan. Um, a couple of Beatles things uh, just to shout out that, that I haven't mentioned yet. One is that the Beatles got their break when they replaced their drummer, just like happens in here. So Ringo, Ringo Starr was a replacement drummer, and that's when they started to get their break. Another is one of their early songs they had written as a ballad, but they eventually decided to play as a sped up song, just like that thing you do. Um, not in the same dramatic fashion, but I think that was She Loves You. I'm not 100% sure. But this here is is definitely referencing the iconic performance of I Want to Hold Your Hand on the Ed Sullivan Show. So some things that lead up to this, the band just loses track of the bass player. They just can't find him the day of the performance. And he that's when he's at Disneyland. Another good smash cut of they're like looking around. Where is he? Where the hell is he? They're going down... I don't know Disneyland as well. It, it looks like Big Thunder Mountain, but I don't know if Big Thunder Mountain existed yet. We see Faye getting dressed up all fancy. And there's this nice little uh, guitar tune as she's getting her, her makeup and her dress and her hair. Um, film is scored by Howard Shore of Lord of the Rings. I wouldn't have put that together if I didn't see it in the credits. Yeah, it doesn't really sound noticeably like a... The, the two don't sound alike, which I guess just shows off his uh, flexibility. Yeah. Now, it's also fun to see just the the presentation of this TV show at the end. We see some of the acts that precede the Wonders. So there's an interview with the astronaut Gus Grissom, who is played here by Brian Cranston. Walter White, I saw you react when he appeared, Brian. Yeah, this was crazy. I did not remember this, but he's just there very briefly talking about being an astronaut. And so, yeah, and you got a character named Mr. White, too, in the film. Yeah, there you go. It's like a weird uh, fibers connecting it to Breaking Bad, which, of course, is the thing that you always bring up. But the thing that I always bring up is that thing you do. We're both referring to the Mr. White vehicle, the Brian Cranston vehicle. Of course. But then the, the, the wonders get on stage. Oh, another thing I like is that we uh, see Guy's family watching the TV show and Chad is with them for some reason. Right. Chad has kind of become the surrogate son because <laughs> when Guy left, uh, Chad got a job at the record store and then he just kind of becomes their son. And he's, yeah. he's literally eating dinner with them, watching the, the broadcast of the band. At the appliance store. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're watching it at the family home. Yeah. And it's cool. We see like the crew putting the TV show together. We see the swooping cameras and the people in the booth, basically. And I don't know, this made me think of Gauntly, Brian. That's like you know, the closest exposure I've had to any sort of TV production. Mm -hmm. your, your public access TV show from a few years back. That's right. And I noticed that during the rest of the movie, there were a lot of uh, jib shots, you know, like little crane movements where the camera will kind of come up from down below or vice versa where they've got it on a, a like a swing arm and then they go to the tv station and you kind of see the other side of that 
breaking the fourth wall a little bit, kind of showing how the film is constructed. Right. It's kind of clever because, you know, obviously it's a movie about a band, but you're seeing the filming of not a movie, but a TV thing about a band. And you get to see all the movie making technology, which is clearly part of the fascination for Tom Hanks when he was putting this together. Right. And then here we get maybe the most dramatic of the the Spartacuses. So Lenny's nickname for Guy is Skitch. He's the only one who calls him Skitch, but I like that name. He says, uh, Skitch, how did we get here? And he says, I led you here, sir, for I am Spartacus. And then they start performing the song. It's the last time we hear the song throughout the movie. It's an exciting rendition of it. The song gets more and more polished and professional as it goes. Although my favorite performance is the raw one when they're... uh, figuring it out fast for the first time, but definitely gets a little more polished as it goes. And they like, no, they have like little routines with it a little bit more and they have it down pat. So they do a thing where they introduce all the people on screen with names and with, so that you see them with their, like just a close up on the individual with their name, which is something that they did for the Beatles. I don't know if it was that very first Ed Sullivan one or if it was a different one, but they cut to each of the different band members So when it cuts to Jimmy, it says, careful, girls, he's engaged, Um, which is actually a direct reference to the Beatles when they zoomed in on John Lennon. And it said, sorry, girls, he's married because he was married at the time, although he ended up getting divorced. And obviously with Jimmy, it's a reference to Faye, which Mr. White had them put up because he learned that they had been together for two years, which is a little throwaway line that got referenced in a bar earlier. So it's like you said, every little detail kind of ends up feeding back a lot of setup and payoff here. And the performance goes well. And so then we see them popping champagne and uh, Lenny's going to head to Vegas with his playboy bunny. And um, we, we smash cut to him getting a casino wedding in a couple scenes. But Jimmy, who's just growing grumpier and grumpier, berates Faye about the public announcement that they're engaged when they're they're not engaged and this makes Faye sad and she dramatically breaks up with him in front of everyone she says from now on you stay away from me I've wasted thousands and thousands of kisses on you and that's kind of the climax of the the film but we still have a little bit left so the next day they're finally doing what Jimmy's been wanting to do. They're going to go record music. They go to the, the studio, the recording studio, and we see that Jimmy is still unhappy there because he's mad that that uh, Mr. White is making them perform covers. And one thing is they're supposed to do a cover of That Thing You Do in Spanish, which is near the top of the list of ones that I want to hear I wish there existed a full version of is that thing you do in Spanish. <laughs> I've never plugged it into a Spanish translator for what it would be. Yeah. I want to hear them teaming up with the mariachi band from the start. I, I feel like this song needs a horn line. Oh, that's a good call. Like uh, what's the one in walk hard. Um, guilty is charged. I don't know. I, I can, I can hear that in my head. This is another Beatles reference because one of the first things the Beatles did after they had their first couple hits was they recorded. I want to hold your hand in German. But Jimmy gets mad and Mr. White says, well, you're under contract. You got to do what I say, record what I tell you to record. And you need to make it snappy because that's a line that they'd use that the song is snappy throughout the movie. And Jimmy puts on a a fake happy face and he says, I I quit. I quit. And so he quits the band. 
Jimmy quits the band. The band that the one Lenny's gone at this point. The bass player's gone at this point. The band is just crumbling apart. Oh, and when they couldn't get the bass player, they brought in like a session musician. You know, an, an old hand who does this all the time and is is genuinely really talented. Which also seems like some foreshadowing to where things end up. Well, it's also interesting because that thing you do actually has a pretty tricky bass line for this type of song. Um, Adam Schlesinger, who wrote the song, was the bassist. And so he would write rich bass lines for himself. And so if you ever actually listen carefully to the bass, it's, it's got a lot of moving parts to it. It's not just strumming the same notes over and over again. But Mr. White laments the dissolution of the wonders. He says, one hit wonders, a very common story indeed. Which makes you wonder how I didn't get that the name Wonders was a reference to the term One Hit Wonders. The way that he says this line made me think of his role as the conductor in the Polar Express. Like this whole thing has been some grand lesson that he's teaching (laughs) to the band. That's kind of funny, yeah. Like he he brought him on the train for the ride, but you know, nothing lasts forever. I really like this Tom Hanks performance. He's likable but he's like very serious too it's like a slightly different tone he's he's more no nonsense than he normally is more no nonsense so is that less nonsense or more less less nonsense than normal oh and one thing i like is he says uh mr white says the wonders are in breach of contract and guy says mr white i'm really sorry as if that's gonna like make any difference in the proceedings him saying i'm really sorry but mr white lets guy hang around the record studio because you know it's his first time ever in a real record studio and mr white walks off and guy's just kind of drumming around in the the record studio and who should walk in but del paxton his jazz hero and del wants to jam with him and so this is this is nice because it's the real dream come true moment for Guy, more so than any of the stuff that happened with the Wonders and that thing you do. From the start, he's loved jazz music. He's loved Del Paxton. He just wanted to be a jazz drummer. And now after everything fell apart, he gets his his actual dream of drumming with uh, with Del. And they lay down a track and Del's like, oh, you're pretty good, man. So you're right. It's like very wish fulfillment for for Guy here. Right, but it, it kind of opens the door that Guy can be, at, you know, if nothing else, he can be a session musician. Like that dude that they brought in, um, you know, he can help people lay down tracks and kind of flow in and out of different ensembles. Right. Uh, yeah, I agree. And it, it is built throughout the movie that A, he really loves jazz and B, he's actually quite good at playing the drum. And so later... Guy finds Faye as everybody's kind of leaving the dream over. And uh, they talk a little bit and we learn that Guy's going to stick around L.A., like you said, to try and make it as a drummer. But Faye's going to go back to Erie. But as she's about to leave, Guy moves in. He makes he makes the move. He kisses Faye after quite a bit of foreshadowing on this topic throughout the, the movie. A lot of mutual affection, like you, you said. And that's how the movie ends. There's this bellhop who's been kind of like a Greek chorus almost at the hotel where they've been staying. And he the last shot is of him smiling at the camera, which I always thought was kind of a goofy way to end the movie. But I don't know how you would end it. But yeah. And then it cuts to credits and and we get the where are they now? So we learn that Guy and Faye end up married and opening a a jazz school. Uh, They stay in L.A. for a while, but then move to Washington 
Jimmy ends up a famous performer and a record producer. And one of the bad names he threw out earlier was the Herdsman, but Herd is spelled H-E-A-R-D. And that ends up being the band that got him his gold record. I want to hear a Herdsman song. There is one, I think, on uh, the soundtrack. Oh, wow. Actually, I'm going to look it up right now, see if it's actually attributed to the Herdsman. So... I'm hearing them in my head as like the Sons of the Pioneers, which probably doesn't line up right in the time because it's not the 50s, it's the 60s. But it sounds like they would sing cowboy songs to me. It does kind of sound like that. Yeah. So there is one song on the That Thing You Do soundtrack that I don't think appears in the movie at all. It might be like the second credit song or something, but it's called She Knows It. And um, yeah, it's it's just one of the songs on the the album. So... Brian, maybe I'll give you the task of listening to the soundtrack straight through so you can hear all the the songs that are there. And I'll come up with a list of ones that I wish were on there. I also think it's interesting that Jimmy went back to Playtone. You know, he badmouthed them, but then it said that he, like, made these big hits under the Playtone label. So Exactly, yeah. He must have still used his connections. We also learned that Lenny became a casino manager, and there's, like, a, a funny reveal. He is currently single, which... Spent his his uh, fate throughout the whole movie is striking out with women. We learned that the bass player basically ended up the least affected by this whole thing. He got a Purple Heart, I think in Vietnam, they said, and he ended up becoming a building contractor. So Okay, but this is important, Dan. Where did he end up being a building contractor? Does it say? I can't remember. It says he's a contractor in Orlando, Florida. It's suggesting that he was so inspired by Disneyland that he went on to build Disney World. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I never caught that, but you're 100% right. You're blowing my mind right now. All right, that's a that's a terrific find. Hold on, let me see exactly what it says. It says it says TB player, which I I thought they should have just said the bass player, but it plays TB player as if it's his name. Served two tours of duty in Vietnam, receiving the Purple Heart for wounds sustained at the siege of Khe San. And then he is a building contractor in Orlando, Florida. You're right. I never pieced that together, but it's his love of Disney. That's great. Yeah. So of note, happy endings for everybody. Nobody gets a bad ending here. Right. Even the guy who goes to Vietnam doesn't uh, disappear. Like what was his name in American Graffiti? Oh, yeah. It's it's kind of like American Graffiti, except instead of half of them being tragic, it's all happy endings. Yeah, Toad or something. I forget his name. That sounds right. The guy who looked like Arnold from Troll 2. Yeah. And that's how that thing you do. The film from 1996, my favorite movie, ends. So, normally we do good things and then not so good things. I want to flip that order so I can end on a high note. I'm going to do not so good things first. Um, but I guess before we dive into the not so good things, any stray observations or things I missed or anything on your mind, Brian, here? I thought it was really funny throughout, and it was much tighter than the extended version that I had previously seen. I completely agree, yeah. The only thing that I felt like was missing watching it this time, there's a couple mentions of the song that they record that's the B-side on their one-hit record, which is called All My Only Dreams, and I seem to remember hearing All My Only Dreams. They, They might show that in the extended one no it's actually in the theatrical cut it's at villa pianos one time it's a slow song okay okay so you do hear it at some point 
He's, it's the one that goes, and when I close my eyes, you'll be right by my side. So that's one of the ones that appears there. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I lost that. I feel like they may linger on that a little longer in the extended. Could be, yeah. Uh, I was also wondering, again, what is that thing? What is the thing that is done? It's funny you say that because my five-year-old was very caught up in this. It's that thing you do, but what is the thing that one does according to it? And my understanding of it, having really not put all that much deep thought into it, kind of not actually thought about it that much at all, to be honest, but basically is that it's like the ineffable little things that someone does that attracts you. You know who has things? The devil. And he uses them for doing. <laughs> Is that the actual line from... Uh... No, in, in Walk Hard, the song they play at the talent show is... It's, it's basically I Want to Hold Your Hand. That's the, that's the Beatles song. But it's a very similar name to that. And the, the preacher, somebody stands up and says, You know who's got hands? The devil. And he uses them for holding. Good stuff, yeah. A lot of good lines in uh, Walk Hard, and a lot of good lines in that thing you do. I, I don't know what I'm going to title the episode yet. It's always a challenge to come up with a good title. I don't know if I'll use an obscure quote or, or what, but we'll think about it. But yeah, so again, I'll, like I said, I'll open with some not so good things before I get to the, the th reasons I like it. I would say there's like maybe five things that I'd change or that just bug me just a little bit around five. One is that Jimmy's just too grumpy. No, he shouldn't be that grumpy. It even gets lampshaded that he's that grumpy. And it doesn't make any sense. It's like he's living his dream life, like literally weeks after he was just a struggling musician. And immediately he's so entitled. That to me felt a little fake. When I rewatched the extended edition, I'm going to see if he gets a little more color there, a little more shading. Mm -hmm. it, it's kind of like he's the he's the John Lennon and they like stretched that is just he okay he's got to be the dark like brooding one right but he doesn't have any levity he needs at least to smile a little bit you know and extending that a little bit the second half of the movie isn't quite as giddy as the first half the, when they're rising rising that's when it's very very fun and uh, you kind of it's more quickly going through all the different stages and so you get kind of it in bursts Whereas the second half of the film takes place across about a weekend, basically. So just not quite as uh, uh, boom, 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 fast and happy, but still still very fun. You know, I'm, I'm not saying it becomes dark or anything because it really doesn't. It's it's light and nimble and goofy all the way through. And then two of the nitpickiest things, one of them I already mentioned, TB player, just make it the bass player. Like, I, I think it's funny that they we just never learn his name. Right. I, yeah. As I said, I this didn't even register for me until like I was in the bathroom after seeing the movie and uh, the person next to me at the urinal was like, hey, TV player, you get it? <laughs> I was like, oh, OK. Yeah. Never got his name. They also get records early in the story from Uncle Bob and then they get their Playtone record. And there's like a scene where they get really excited about getting their Playtone records. They're like, I can't believe we have a record. But I feel like that would have that moment would have come when they got their first record. So I guess because, oh, it's a real Playtone record and that's like a meaningful label or something. Another thing that I only noticed the, the last couple times I watched is that Faye talks a whole lot about kissing, like half of her lines reference kissing. 
And she also kisses people on the cheeks a whole lot. It's kind of weird once you start looking for it. She talks about how she wait. I wasted thousands and thousands of kisses on you. And oh, was Tina a good kisser? And I don't know. There's just lots of stuff like that. At the end, the way that she and Guy hook up, even though it's Guy who brings it up. But when was the last time you were good and kissed? And it's like, all right, cut the pump the brakes on the kissing a little bit here. But I think she gets a lot more to do and like just kind of conversation in the, the extended one. So I'll see how I feel about that after I watch that. I didn't even notice that until like, again, the hundredth time I watched the movie, though. So in my case, like things that I didn't like as much when I watched it the first time, I thought uh, were improved from the the brisker pace. The script feels just really tight and uh, like everybody has got some arc that's planted early on and you kind of always know that that's where they're going to end up. So it's, I guess if it has a shortcoming, it may not be the most surprising movie. Things are kind of telegraphed. Yeah. The the closest thing to a quote unquote twist is Faye and Guy getting together, but that's not at all a twist. It's very heavily foreshadowed, which it was as I was thinking about it, it's a little bit like the trope that I've talked a lot about where the best friends fall in love and it's kind of a surprise at the end. You know, they have the love revelation at the end. So that this has the love revelation, although it's not exactly the same structure as the ones that we've talked about in like Trojan War a few weeks ago. Uh, something that kind of bothered me the first time I watched was just like how abruptly the band falls apart at the end. Um, but I liked that more now. What it kind of had me thinking of was when we watched The Train and the end of, you may not pick up right away what I'm going for, but like at the end of that, it's like so many things have gone wrong that finally just the train slides off the tracks. Yeah. <laughs> and there is nothing more. It's like, there's nothing we can do now. We're, we're just stuck here. And that's what I was feeling this time when Tom Hanks says... The wonders are in breach of contract. It's just like there's nothing left anymore. It just, yeah, it's done. It happened. It's it's fallen to dust. I think you can make the case that the movie's too nice. I, that's what I like about it. It's extremely generous and caring, and you, there are no bad vibes whatsoever. But it is very generous. It actually reminds me of Boogie Nights in that regard, where the ending, everybody's just happy at a barbecue. Here, everybody gets their happy ending, you know? And it's like... I dig it. You know, this this is it's just a light movie about a thing that happened and everyone moved on from it. And in fact, most people's lives were improved from it. So, you know, right. Uh, unlike pretty much any other music biopic, there is basically no drugs. There is a little bit of drinking and, you know, Guy Patterson slurs some words and that's it. It's there's no <laughs> we're doing pills uppers and downers they're the logical next step for you <laughs> right and one thing that our friend eric came to the screening and we were talking about the movie afterwards and one thing he pointed out that i i don't know if i'd explicitly thought about but is definitely true is you would expect the record label to be the bad guy in this story but they're not the bad guy they 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 do things right by everyone they treat the wonders really well the wonders are apparently remunerated well by everything they do and they put up in a nice hotel and there's no scandals other than the one thing about the executive getting mad at Jimmy who just wants to share his songs. You know, that's really the only time the record labels anything close to the bad guy. 
but here are my good things. Reasons why this is my favorite movie ever. First of all, it's just a it's tremendously generous movie. Start with the characters and not just the main characters, but like just the people who appear on the fringes. Like they're all well loved and have personality and color. There's the local kids. There's the talented creatives we see throughout, like the the mu- different musicians. And, and there's there's the Hollywood hotshots who kind of get some glamour to them. The business people who are kind of no nonsense, but likable. The fun dancers. By the way, this movie is choreographed by by Tony Basil, who's saying, oh, Mickey, you're so fine. But she had a long career as a choreographer. Even the furniture store owner. There's like a, an affection to like the blue collar, uh, you know, low key guy who just owns a, a general store, you know, or I guess in this case, it's an appliance store. But extend that not just the people, but like each of the scenes and the venues just get a lot of detail and a lot of love. So you have the the talent show in Erie with the college bands and the corny guy who's the MC, the smoky Italian bar with every residents there ordering pizza the, the near the airport. You got the small time rock show with like the kind of local celebrity who does radio ads. You got the the radio DJs throughout. You got the Playtone, everybody who's on the tour the beach party Hollywood shoot. And then definitely a lot of love we talked about for the national TV crew on the, the TV show. Just, it's a lot of love in this movie and, and so much precision in like the things it shows and the lines and, and that they have and stuff. And yeah, I also agree with you. It's a really funny movie, but one thing I like about it is it's, I don't know if dry is the right word, but it's not punchline jokey. It's just kind of like, it has like a link later esque naturalism to it where it's just like it feels more like people just talking. So you kind of get some appreciation for like the weird lines that get thrown into the dialogue or kind of tossed out that are not really punchlines, but are just kind of there or like have funny delivery like guys, Chad fell down. That's not really a punchline, but it's still funny to me. I don't know why. Right. Yeah. The timing is good, like throughout. Yeah. And I just like how everything is made up, but so believable and just so polished. Like I can just imagine Hanks having this script for like a decade and being like, oh, you know what this needs? This needs like um, a kind of kooky radio DJ who asks them who their influences are or like, oh, what if we made the the guy who's on the Pittsburgh rock show have like a, a funny name like Boss Vic Koss or something like that? And just I don't know. It's like he thought through every little piece of it so that you can kind of like pay attention to it and enjoy it, I guess. Right. Carefully constructed. I also think Hanks as well as a director. Like, I think the direction's really good. There's some clever shots. There's like one or two times now that I've seen it a hundred times where I would be like, show me something else during this exact moment. That might even be the editing more than the directing. But like when Faye breaks up with Jimmy, I've always wanted to see what's Guy's reaction when Faye is breaking up with Jimmy. But we we don't see that until like a whole minute later. But... I do want to talk more about the cast because there's, like I mentioned, it's basically all quote unquote secret weapons, like people who just show up and make movies better, even if they're not the most famous actors or whatever. But I I want to really dig into like the the cast and some of the other things we've seen them in in part two. But I do. I really love the cast. So, but yeah, that's kind of the high level thing. And I guess what puts it over, what, what makes it my number one favorite is first of all, it's mine. It's like, it's one that I feel personally connected to, you know, my, my family too also, of course, but like, I don't know. It's just like one that I've always felt connected to. So that's maybe nostalgia, but also just like, it's my vibe too. 
I don't know. And I like that it's so watchable and breezy. That's my favorite kind of movie. You just put it on. You, you won't feel bad about it. You don't even need to be fully engaged in it and you'll get something out of it. You'll feel cheerful by the time you're done. It's almost like a, a commodity at that point. It's like a thing that will put you in a good mood and make you feel happy, you know? All right, Brian, thank you for humoring me. Any other things before we get to, is it good? What other things? I Yeah, I guess I'll say one other thing here, which is um, uh, it upped my appreciation for Steve Zahn as just being a funny guy. And I wonder, I probably name dropped it at some point. Did, did you ever see the movie Sahara? No, but he's one of the stars of that. Right. So Sahara was like an attempt to start a franchise of, you know, that's happened time and time again. We talked um, City of Ember where it's like, oh, yeah, this is the first chapter. Right. Um, in what's to going to be a, a long, long series. And no. <laughs> But uh, that Sahara was one of those, and it was taken from a book by Clive Cussler, and the the hero character is Dirk Pitt, and Dirk Pitt is basically Indiana Jones, but his specialty is that he is a diver. He like works with submarines, mm. and uh, the first book in the series was called *Raise the Titanic*, which did get a separate movie like back in the '80s, which also I don't think was a was a whole series. But you know, kind of pertinent again, uh, topical in the news. Oh yeah. <laughs> but uh, Sahara was like an attempt to um, make it a make it a series. Uh, another book from the the book series, and anyway. I'm sorry to go on a, a ramble, but uh, I kind of saw it as like uh, also a knockoff of National Treasure because it very much has the central trios dynamic from National Treasure where you've got the the like archaeologist guy and the like knowledgeable historian girl and the goofy friend who's there, which countless movies, of course, have the, have that arrangement. But um, the 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 humorous guy in National Treasure, it's Justin Bartha. In uh, Sahara, it's Steve Zahn. I thought he was so good in that movie, and I was like, okay, well, we're gonna get some more, right? And we never did. We need more Steve Zahn. Yeah, the the main dude was uh, Matthew McConaughey. Steve Zahn makes everything better. I recently watched the really not good rom-com starring Reese Witherspoon and what's the guy from that 70s show? Um, Ashton Kutcher. And um, it's called something like My Place or Yours or something like that. And it's really not good, but Steve Zahn is in it. And he made me laugh every time. He plays like kind of a, a neighbor who's sort of like a spacey stoner hippie type. And he, he's very funny in it. Yeah, I think Steve Zahn has probably had the biggest career of the the main band members. I mean, I think obviously both Liv Tyler and Tom Hanks and Charlize Theron have had bigger careers than the rest of them. But like Ethan Embry is, you know, he's appeared in stuff, but he's almost never the star. Right. That's not a name that I recognized. Giovanni Ribisi, too. The guy who plays Chad. Right. I do know Giovanni Ribisi. He was in Avatar. Oh, okay. He was in probably some other things. For whatever reason, that's what comes to mind. He's like the representative of the evil company. The guy who really wants the unobtainium. He's kind of got a slightly squirrely look to him. He's in 
Lost in Translation. He's in Friends. He plays uh, Phoebe's one of her boyfriends or something along those lines. All right. So obviously I still got more things to say that we'll capture in part two, but Brian, are you ready to rate the movie? I'm ready. All right. Is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good. That's a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So Brian is, that thing you do good yeah it is good i am actually going to bump it up quite a bit from the first time that i saw it i am going to give this one a seven out of eight exceptionally good i thought it was very well constructed i love the details of the different groups that we see uh it has a lot in common with walk hard which as i've said is one of my favorites in that all the fictional music is pretty good. I wish we got more of a variety from the band at the film center, but of course that's the point, is that they've got the one big song. And, you know, we see the one era in time, so that kind of limits the, the style of music that we see as well, whereas in Walk Hard it's like the whole second half of the 20th century, and you got all kinds of different music. Um, but it's it's like it's well plotted we we kind of are always aware of where it's going to end up but it's it's well paced how we get there i like all the different characters i like how tom hanks is in it like not an overbearing presence but i think he picked the right role for himself and you kind of understand that he's the one steering the ship so yeah a good film Cool, man. Well, I am glad that you think highly of it. And so, yeah, I imagine you do as well, Dan, but what are you going to say? That's right. So, you know, it's obviously for me, it's a tour de good. It's a masterpiece rating. It's an eight out of eight. It's it's way up there. I mean, like I kind of opened with, I wouldn't say this is the greatest movie of all time. It's it just doesn't have quite enough gravity to it to really... Um, move the needle on like film history or the record books or anything. I do think it should be a little more love than it is. Cause it's so fun. It's just the, the loveliest little movie. It makes me so happy. It's so good. It's just a, a charm and a delight and a treat. It, it always makes me laugh. Honestly, I get bored of seeing movies over and over again, at least most of them. But that thing you do, I've seen a bajillion times and I'm planning on seeing a bajillion times more and just, Everything about it is pretty much the best possible version of itself. The music is so good. I love the song. Favorite movie song ever. Hanks is great. The whole cast is great. Tom Everett Scott is so, so damn charming. Um, I don't know why he didn't have a bigger career because he's he's really likable. That's the other thing for me is it kind of feels like a one-off. Like they made it and then they broke the mold. It's like... I mean, it, it, it does kind of feel like the people got scattered to the wind, because where else have you seen Tom Everett Scott? Uh, what other movies has Tom Hanks directed? And the answers are like, OK, one other thing. Right. Not much. Yeah. And so I love this movie. It's it's my favorite movie, Brian. It's it's an eight out of eight. It's a tour to good. And I am very excited to talk more about it very soon with you, Brian. So. 
I'll send you a little more details on some things you can do to prep for for part two of this as you let me indulge in some of the obscure edge cases, edge details of this this film. Right. And I just want to shout out that uh, eventually it's not going to be Dan's birthday anymore. And then we'll be into the uh, movies about making movies month. And I saw a lot of parallels in this one with a couple films that you'll see over the course of that uh, series. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, we do see them literally make a movie. I could have just thrown it on there. Like, hey, there's a scene where they're making a movie. Absolutely. And I mean, we spend quite a bit of time at the TV station, too. So it's all about like the rise to fame in L.A. and and creating entertainment media. So I, I feel like it, it belongs. Even the making of the music is in the spirit of making an art, making a, a piece of entertainment to be consumed. Right. So, yeah, I guess you can share what your pick is next time. And listeners can also hear me talk quite a bit more about Adam Schlesinger on a podcast I recorded. I'll try to dig that up and include a link on the Discord and maybe even in the episode notes, but I'm a big fan of Adam Schlesinger. And I think it was on a podcast that was formerly called Dear Discreet Guide when it was a business-themed podcast, but the creator of it, this woman named Jennifer Crittenden, expanded it into like a more general uh, culture discussion and had me on to talk about Schlesinger after he passed away. So that was really special to be able to talk quite a bit about him. And I've also written about him elsewhere. I'll throw some links on the Discord. Brian, I will talk to you again soon on The Goods, a film podcast, where we did that thing we did, Brian. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Tune in again next time. Mm -hmm.